Um, again, I'm Martin Sullivan. I'm director of the National Portrait Gallery. And this is Margaret Sanger. And we're going to spend a little time talking about her. But we're also going to play a little version of Facebook and see if we can connect Margaret Sanger to some of the other individuals whose portraits are here in this hall. And you're very welcome. I wish we had more seating, but you're very welcome to lean more want to sit, and I'm sure we can accommodate it. It's sort of a lifeboat situation. Um, anyway, uh, what do we know about Margaret Sanger? I'm sure some of you uh, have a fair amount of information already about who she is, what she Planned was. Planned Parenthood. Uh, very much associated with Planned Parenthood was uh, the spark plug, if you will, in creating what became a national network of Planned Parenthood organizations and clinics. And then uh, in the 1950s was the president of the International Federation for Planned Parenthood. What else do we know about her? She was jailed several times. She was jailed several times, and I want to speak about that. Uh, because uh, this room, which has the theme of the search for justice, is full of stories of people who stood up. I mean, right behind us over here, we have this wonderful uh, Mayan-type mural of uh, uh, Cesar Chavez, who's on the left, and Dolores Huerta uh, on the lower right, and heroes of the Mexican Revolution, okay? And uh, all of those were people who stood up uh, some who went to jail, a couple who were executed, um, and certainly we think of Cesar Chavez and the United Farm Workers in terms of rape strike, hunger strikes, things of that kind. Uh, Rosa Parks, who's right behind us, uh, flanked by two uh, threatening-looking uh, official officers, is certainly someone who stood up uh, and uh, changed America in the process. The room is filled with stories like that. I want to start us tonight uh, in the part of Margaret Sanger's life that perhaps is not so well known, and that is how did she get to be uh, both uh, an iconic figure in the world of Planned Parenthood and even to this day a controversial person uh, who is detested by many uh, for her views and for her actions. How did that happen, okay? Uh, well, let's, let's take her back to her birth uh, and her parents. Uh, Margaret uh, Sanger was born uh, in uh, Corning, New York, in the year 1879, okay? She had a long life. Uh, she died in uh, 1966 at the age of 86, almost 87. So she had a very long period of time in which she could have an impact. My sort of theme that I want to wrap around uh, our discussion of Mar Margaret is Margaret is her mother's daughter. Margaret is her father's daughter. We are all the children of our parents, both our parents, in one way or another. But I think she exemplifies that. I'm going to talk about the bust a little bit in more detail, but this was made just a couple of years uh, before she died. The original version of this in 1964, and remember she died in 1966. 
Um, okay, so she's born in Corning, New York, and uh, her maiden name was Higgins. And her father, Michael Hennessy Higgins, was a stonecutter, an Irishman. Uh, he earned most of his money uh, carving uh, angels and decorations for tombstones in cemeteries. Uh, her mother, uh, Anne Purcell uh, uh, Higgins, uh, was uh, an extremely devout Roman Catholic. Okay, and Margaret grew up in a large household. This is where being her mother's daughter had so much influence on who she became. Her mother went through 18 pregnancies, 18. She was uh, of a generation in which you did uh, what the hierarchy of your church told you, uh, seven of those pregnancies did not come to full term, but 11 of them did. And she was the sixth of 11 children. Uh, so she spent a lot of her childhood, uh, as middle children tend to do, looking after the younger ones, cleaning the house, this and that and the other thing. Um, and, uh, and then she had an opportunity to go away to what was called a college. It was really not much more than a high school in a place called Claverack, New York, also upstate, but was called home uh, by her family because her mother became quite ill. Again, think of it, 18 pregnancies. Her mother passed away at the age of 50 uh, from tuberculosis and cervical cancer. Uh, profound impact on Margaret's life. Her father, the stonecutter, uh, was in many respects a polar opposite of her mother's traditional devotional life. The father was something of an anarchist. Uh, he believed in socialism. He was an advocate, as her mother was not. Her father was an advocate of women's suffrage, free public education. Uh, he was a brawler, okay? They're both Irish Catholics. There's room for a lot of different behaviors, as I know, in that particular culture. Uh, and so that's the point, that it was her mother's quiet suffering uh, in the 18 pregnancies, which clearly exhausted her, as well as her father's uh, radicalism, activism, that eventually converged. Okay? So... Margaret, in the year 1902, uh, married a man named Sanger, uh, and uh, was at that time just finishing some training as a nurse. They moved first to um, the Adirondacks, to Saranac, New York, because Margaret was suffering uh, from what was diagnosed as tuberculosis at that time. She exhaustion and so forth. Uh, and that uh, was an interlude. They had a couple of children. But in 1910, they moved to New York City. And almost immediately in 1910, they got drawn into the bohemian cultural life of Greenwich Village, a very yeasty uh, and, uh, and, and different environment than either of them had been exposed to. Who were some of the people that they knew? Well, 
John Reed. Anybody remember the movie Reds? And yeah, and John Reed, an American who went to uh, the Soviet Union in expectation that this was going to be a worker's paradise and so forth. Uh, Upton Sinclair, uh, the muckraking uh, reporter. Uh, Mabel Dodge, uh, the uh, offspring of a very wealthy New Jersey family, a free thinker, uh, moved to Taos, New Mexico, uh, married a Pueblo man, and continued to support a lot of those kinds of causes. Emma Goldman, another figure in the Communist Party in the United States, uh, who uh, was very much anti-war during the First World War. So there's a crowd that was very, very interesting. Now, to support herself and to uh, get involved in the community, uh, Margaret Sanger began to work as a nurse on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Think about that, turn of the century, Lower East Side. Who here has been to the Lower East Side Tenement Museum in New York? Okay, so you know, uh, I mean, that was a, 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 a terribly crowded, unsanitary, uh, unpleasant environment. Uh, heavily at that time, Eastern European Jewish as well as other uh, ethnic and, and national groups. And it was there that Margaret Sanger encountered a woman named Sadie Sachs. S-A-C-H-S. She encountered her twice. Sadie Sachs was young. She was married. First time Margaret Sanger went to see her as a nurse, Sadie Sachs was desperately ill because of a self-induced abortion effort. Okay? Um, she was desperate. She was poor. Uh, she had children already. She didn't know how she could support another one. And she asked her doctor, what are my alternatives? And the doctor said to her, abstinence. And apparently that was not what Sadie Sachs was willing to accept because the next time Margaret Sanger went to see her a few months later, Sadie Sachs had had another self-induced abortion and died. And that was the moment that led Margaret Sanger to say, this is not right. Uh, women should be able to exercise some control over when and how uh, they're going to bear children. The issue then was not abortion. Margaret Sanger personally did not, in those days, like abortion one bit. She knew that there were reasons and times when it might have been necessary. The real problem she saw was that in the American legal system, because of the so-called Comstock laws, they will touch on it in a moment, uh, disseminating any information about birth control methods was considered to be obscenity, and that's what could land you in jail. Uh, and so Margaret Sanger said, that is, that's just not right. So uh, she... Uh, wrote a few pieces uh, for various publications. Uh, she started an eight-page newsletter. And let me make sure I get the title of this right, uh, because it's, I think, important to the rest of the story. Um, the Woman Rebel. And their motto was, no gods and no masters. 
okay? Uh, and for her efforts, she was repeatedly arrested and charged with distributing obscenity. Why? The Comstock laws. Uh, anybody know the name Anthony Comstock? He's a figure, if, uh, you may have, may have read some of you back in the 1990s, there was a fabulous uh, reality-based novel, if that's the right word, called The Alienist by uh, Caleb Carr, uh, when uh, Theodore Roosevelt was police commissioner in New York and all these different people. Well, Anthony Comstock was the head of the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. And he was a guy who is sort of the blue stocking uh, guy who had a lot of political savvy and got himself appointed uh, as a postal inspector with a badge and a gun to go after people uh, who were violating laws that he had been instrumental in getting Congress to pass. Uh, this one specific occasion on which Margaret Sanger was arrested had to do with the fact that she named two venereal diseases, syphilis and gonorrhea. And for that, she was hauled to jail. Okay? Uh, so, uh, from a very early time, her interest, again, it's not abortion, and it's not some of the later quirky and really repugnant ideas that she came to embrace. It is the thought that married women uh, ought to have access to medical information uh, that could help them and their, their families in their lives. Uh, and so she was repeatedly arrested. I came across a clipping from the New York Times from November 1921, and this kind of shows what she was up against. Uh, at that time, the organization that later became Planned Parenthood was just starting, and they applied for and got a permit to hold a meeting in New York Town Hall on the subject, is birth control moral? And they made an effort to include uh, the whole community. They sent an invitation to the Archbishop of the Catholic Diocese of New York, Patrick J. Hayes. And the Archbishop sent a Monsignor who was his secretary to go to that meeting. And the Monsignor, man of the church, not a cop, goes to a lieutenant of the local precinct, a guy named Donahue, and says to him, the Archbishop believes that we don't want this meeting to happen. It's inappropriate. And Donahue and his men arrest Margaret Sanger and one of the other speakers before the meeting can even begin. Arrest them, haul them away. Okay? Uh, they were booked, but the charges were dismissed because the magistrate said, hey, they didn't do anything. <laughs> Um, but the power of the Catholic Church. And Margaret Sanger kept, uh, throughout this phase at least of her life, she kept trying to cast a wide net uh, and not make it an us versus them discussion. Uh, she uh, had invited other Catholic leaders. She invited people from the YMCA and the YWCA, uh, which uh, in those days had a very strong religious uh, identity and so forth, to... Um, uh, come and be part of that dialogue, uh, and they didn't. Uh, and then bit by bit, and partly because of her Greenwich Village radical associations, Margaret became an atheist and a, uh, a real enemy, let's say, of the hierarchy. 
of the Catholic Church. She never turned against the people because she knew that it was those poor people, those women who couldn't get that basic information uh, who were suffering uh, more than she was. I mean, yes, she was arrested. She liked to be arrested. Uh, you know, uh, this is her father in her. She, Margaret wanted to be the martyr. She wanted to be uh, the one uh, identified with the whole movement. Uh, and so there's a series uh, of episodes of, of that kind. Uh, well, fast forward, uh, and I, I'm not going to dwell on this, but as Margaret Sanger's views emerged and developed, uh, they got into areas that many people find repugnant today. Uh, negative eugenics being probably the most controversial. Anybody know what we mean when we say negative eugenics? Okay. Well, eugenics uh, was a pseudoscience in the early part of the 20th century, uh, which believed that you could shape uh, better people uh, by more selection. And of course, the Nazis, in their horrible ways, believed in a form of negative eugenics through extermination. Uh, the Chinese government, in more recent times, uh, favored uh, the uh, uh, early elimination of girl babies. Uh, you know, so there's a persistent theme there. There was a, another side called positive eugenics, and uh, that was a position with which people like Theodore Roosevelt were identified. And the argument there was the Anglo-Saxon stock that started this country need to reproduce in greater numbers so that our strength as a nation is preserved in the face of all of these immigrants coming in, okay? Not very attractive today. But the negative eugenics that Margaret Sanger got drawn to uh, unfortunately had to do with people and families. She believed families rather than the state, but people ought to do whatever can be done to prevent the birth of more babies who were diseased or, quote, feeble-minded or sort of sub-intelligent, whatever you want to call it. Uh, she got entangled up in something called the Negro Project uh, in the 1930s, a very unfortunate uh, thing, uh, in which she enlisted the um, support of some very wealthy uh, philanthropists. And the idea was to get uh, ministers in the African-American community to support the idea that black families uh, who were poor and not educated and perhaps had mental uh, or physical incapacity, uh, needed to strongly be uh, urged uh, against having children, okay? Uh, Margaret Sanger drifted a little bit into, if they won't do it, then maybe the government needs to do it. Not very attractive stuff. Um, for her other efforts, though, in creating the network of Planned Parenthood and disseminating scientific information about birth control, she also, Margaret, got a lot of support, and including from John D. Rockefeller Jr., uh, the son of the tycoon. John D. Rockefeller Jr., anonymously, because he didn't want the Rockefeller name associated with it, supported uh, her research center for many, many, many years, uh, believing that uh, uh, 
appropriate birth control was part and parcel of uh, a whole complex of steps, including better education, better medical training, better environmental care, and so forth that the nation needed. So it was a very interesting phase. Now, um, Margaret's personal life was kind of rocky. Uh, she uh, separated from her first husband, Sanger. Uh, she later married a, uh, a very rich man, made his money in oil. Uh, they were together a while, but uh, she kind of drifted away from him. Uh, and then she got tangled up in some uh, fairly famous affairs, uh, certainly with uh, the famous uh, psychologist Havelock Ellis, uh, who had uh, a great deal of influence on notions of sexuality and particularly of the idea that the freedom of women to control their bodies was in part to enjoy sexuality and not simply to manage an unmanageable family situation. Uh, she is reported to have had an affair with the writer H.G. Wells. So she's a fairly colorful character. Now, the woman in this bust is uh, represented as she was a couple of years before her death. Uh, she was an attractive woman. She always dressed well. She spoke quite well. Uh, she loved being on the stage. Um, I ran across a video clip that you can find on the Internet uh, from the Ransom Library at the University of Texas uh, Many of you know the name Mike Wallace, right? The newsman from CBS, my God. This is an interview that Mike Wallace did with Margaret Sanger in 1957, 52 years ago, when Mike was uh, hosting uh, an interview show. And she was very lucid and so forth. She was not exactly defensive, but she was slippery about some of those elements of her life that she didn't... Uh, that she got a lot of criticism for. Uh, so uh, this is a bust uh, by uh, uh, Joy uh, Buba, I never, is it? Yeah. Uh, who uh, didn't do a lot of sculpture. We happen to have four pieces by her. Uh, they're all over the place. We have uh, a, a, an Audubon, the great naturalist. Uh, we have Henry Stimson, who was Theodore Roosevelt's Secretary of State, and then Franklin Roosevelt's Secretary of War a pillar of the Eastern establishment. Uh, and we have Norman Thomas, the socialist five-time candidate for president of the United States. But Joy Booba was primarily uh, a children's book illustrator. Uh, I'm not quite sure how she came uh, to this. Uh, Anne, do you happen to know any of that connection? No. There's another person in the story, though, that I do want to share because this is part of the Facebook. Uh, this bust was donated to the National Portrait Gallery by a Pittsburgh woman, Cornelia Scaife May. Cornelia Scaife May, the niece of Andrew W. Mellon. Mellon money, big money in Pittsburgh, okay? Uh, Mrs. Uh, May, Mrs. Scaife May, was uh, very reclusive, very shy of publicity, and very wealthy. Uh, and her abiding interest was the environment, but she also had an interest in uh, women's issues and birth control. In fact, uh, Cornelia Scaife May's uh, grandmother introduced her to Margaret Sanger, so there was a kind of a personal connection there. Uh, very interesting how families are. We talk about Margaret being her, her mother's daughter and her father's daughter, where 
Cornelius Scaife May, she's a Mellon. Her brother is uh, Richard Mellon Scaife, uh, whom Hillary Clinton accused to be at the heart of a vast right-wing conspiracy to destroy Bill Clinton. He's a little, well, he, he's just not her. <laughs> he's off on the other side of the spectrum. So there's, there's an interesting story behind all of that. There's a larger story, and that's what this room is about. You know, when you look around and you see uh, the faces of Americans who have been involved in all kinds of struggles, let's just look down this wall and think about ways in which Margaret Sanger and her leadership in this struggle for women's uh, right to some control over their bodies ties in with these three women uh, right here. Who's closest to me? Everybody recognize who that is? Kate Millett, author of Sexual Politics, huge book in the early 1970s, very much on the theme of women having control over their own lives. Uh, uh, The furthest portrait down, Betty Friedan, the feminine mystique, okay? Again, all part of that story. And the one in the middle? Sandra Gay O'Connor. How's she connected? Well, pardon me? Exactly. Uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, I think it is widely uh, believed, uh, was one of those votes that kept Roe v. Wade preserved by the court uh, in the course of many challenges since 1973. Uh, There's another connection, uh, which I happen to know about because uh, I'm from Arizona and you are too. Uh, Sandra Day O'Connor was raised on a ranch only a few miles from the convalescent home in which Margaret Sanger died. I don't know that they ever met. I do know that Sandra Day O'Connor was reasonably close to a woman who was the very uh, visible president of Planned Parenthood of Arizona, Peggy Goldwater, Barry Goldwater's wife. Facebook stuff, isn't it? Who knows who? Who knows who? So. This is an American life. It's not without its blemishes. It's not without its controversy today. Uh, It is about risk-taking, just as every portrait in this room, I guess, is about risk-taking. And often, as in any life, if you go back, and these were things I didn't know until I foolishly said to my good friend Ian Cook, I'd like to do Margaret Sanger. I didn't know anything about her early life and her family. Uh, and and then the, the New York story. So uh, it's it's a life worth reflecting on. And with that, I'll wrap up. But I uh, certainly am eager to hear your comments and your questions. And thank you very much for coming. What happened with her children? She had, I think, three. Her daughter died at the age of five. Uh, she was essentially estranged from the two sons. Uh, once she got into that bohemian uh, crowd and, and so forth, uh, I, I, I don't know what actually became of them, but they don't figure at all in any of the biographical information that's easy to get at from later on. So I don't think she was a very good mom. What year did she die? 1966. Very sad story. By then, her time had passed. And uh, Margaret Sanger was not one 
uh, to nurture and continue a wide circle of friends who cared about her. She died alone. It's said that on her 80th birthday, which she spent in the convalescent home, she opened a bottle of champagne for herself and drank it. Uh, and when she passed away, uh, there was no one there at her side. And sometimes that's the fate of people who choose to be martyrs or choose to be, um, you know, uh, out against the, the grain of society. So, other questions or thoughts? What's your relationship with Well, uh, she really was the spark plug behind the organization, the American Birth Control League, which was the foundation of Planned Parenthood, the Federation of Planned Parenthood of America. That happened uh, by the 1930s. Uh, and actually, there are a couple of things. You know, Margaret Sanger's initial focus, of course, was just on getting science, medical information out, uh, and really to married women. That was her interest. It was not until the year 1937 that most states finally made it legal. Believe it or not, 1937 made it legal to provide birth control information to married women. So uh, with that year and that uh, point in time, uh, Planned Parenthood then began to be more of a counseling and referral agency and to be more identified with, uh, with the issues of abortion that, that uh, it is uh, challenged by today. But she continued to be very active in it. She spent a lot of time traveling internationally. Uh, in fact, uh, <clears throat> the first influence uh, really on her notions about, the, about prevention of unwanted pregnancies by married women uh, was a, a trip to Holland where she discovered that the Dutch uh, were using the diaphragm as an alternative to the various douches and other suppositories and things that, that uh, the United States was using. And she became an advocate of that. Then she made a series of trips, I think eight in total, uh, to uh, Japan and worked with uh, sympathetic people in Japan uh, and then you know, was a fixture on the lecture circuit, uh, certainly in Europe, which led to her becoming the first president of, of Planned Parenthood International. Anything else? Yes? Did she, did she ever see any advances made, She didn't live to see that. She did live to see uh, the adoption of the pill. 1962, just a couple of years before she died. And then, actually only a few months before she died, there was a court case, Griswold versus Connecticut, uh, which removed the last barrier against criminal prosecution of people for using birth control. So, you know, in a way, she saw it coming, but she didn't live to Roe v. Wade. What impact did the Second World War have on her? Uh, good question. What impact did the Second World War have on her? Uh, by then, she's getting on in years, and... Uh, uh, I know she was uh, involved in various international conferences. She was not uh, political in the sense that some of the people in this room, Dr. King and others, were. Uh, she forged no alliances. I mean, the New Deal was full of leaders who probably were pretty sympathetic 
uh, to Margaret Sanger's struggles, but she never aligned herself with any effort to implement legislation. Uh, and uh, so I really don't know much about the World War II period. I'm sorry, I don't. Yeah. Uh, a very interesting question. Uh, in one of the issues of the Journal of Planned Parenthood, there was a guest essay uh, by a, a German man uh, whom Hitler then appointed to be an expert on population, which meant basically the rationales for extermination. Uh, and she hated it from the beginning. I mean, some of the quotes that I've seen this is 1933, this is not 1940 or 41. She's saying what's happening in Germany is an abomination, it is against all I believe in, uh, it is against human dignity. So she was not sympathetic to the fascists. Uh, she was not either an enrolled communist, at least as far as I can tell. Uh, she is a socialist for sure. Yeah. Okay? Thanks very Thank much. you all very much for coming tonight. Hope yeah. we'll see some of you next week when